In Western languages, we often make the distinction between the words heart and mind, <clears throat> and then live our, le- our lives within the framework and conflicts of that polarity. But as many of you know, in uh, at least several Asian languages, the word for heart and mind is the same. And so when we reflect upon what this might mean in our own experience, when we use either the word heart or mind, we should think of it in its expanded sense of the heart-mind, the big mind, or compassionate awareness. So we have a very inclusive sense of what we're referring to. There's one teaching of a great 18th century Tibetan Dzogchen master named Shabkar that beautifully expresses this union of heart and mind. He said, the mind's nature is vivid as a flawless piece of crystal, intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, and ceaselessly responsive. So tonight I'd like to talk about these three aspects, both what they mean and how we can experience them, both in our practice and in our lives. So how do we understand the term intrinsically empty? For many people, the word empty or emptiness doesn't sound all that appealing. You know, when we use it in English, it may conjure up a notion of some kind of gray vacuity or a blank nothingness, you know, or some sense of absence or deprivation. Well, emptiness is a translation of the Pali and Sanskrit word shunyata. And in the context of understanding the Dharma and understanding our own minds and the world, this word shunyata has many profound meanings and applications. Different of the Buddhist traditions emphasize one aspect or another, one perspective or another of shunyata. But fundamental to them all is the understanding that all things, all phenomena, all arisings are empty of self and empty of any inherent (coughs) substantial existence. So how does this translate into our own understanding? On the very simplest level, emptiness refers to a lack of self-centeredness. We usually think of self-centered or being self-centered as a kind of personality problem, you know, and something our friends might suggest we go to a therapist for it to become a little less self-centered. But it really has a much more fundamental meaning It's when we create or hold on to a sense of self, which in Pali is Sakaya Ditti, the wrong view of self. Self Self-centered in this more fundamental meaning is holding on to the view or the belief or the sense of a sense, sense of self at the very heart, the center of our lives. The self is the reference point for all that we think and all that we do, all that we feel. It's the idea or felt sense of someone behind experience to whom all experience is happening. So I think this sense is familiar to us. There's the sense of a someone to whom experience is happening. And we translate it in our understanding in terms of my body, my thoughts, my feelings, my emotions. So we live in this gravitational field of the self-center. And all of our hopes and our fears, our plans, our worries, you know, our work, our relationships, our desires for new experience, even when we know that they're transitory, all revolve around 
this sense of self. And this is just our ordinary life. This is how we are in the world. This is how most people are in the world. <clears throat> but through a sustained wise attention, through a deepening of mindfulness, of concentration, we begin to leave this self-referential orbit and we are drawn more into the gravitational field of the Dharma. We begin to get glimpses of the zero center of emptiness rather than the self-center of I and mine. The Sufi mystic and poet and philosopher Rumi expressed it very simply and beautifully. He said, live in the nowhere that you come from, even though you have an address here. You know, and that really is an expression of the union of the relative and absolute level. We do live in the world. We have an address here. But can we be coming from, can we live in the nowhere that we come from? <laughs> so the question for all of us is how to open to and realize this emptiness of self in the midst of full and engaged lives. So this is a great challenge. We get intimations of selflessness in some very ordinary experiences. Have you had moments when you sometimes enter into you know, what we might call an effortless flow. I mean, it might be in music, it might be in sports, it might be in work. It might be sitting quietly in nature. Where we're simply in the zone where things seem to be unfolding, to be rolling on by themselves. Things are going on without us at those times. And almost always are much better for it. The Chinese poet Li Po, uh, he caught this moment and he wrote, we sit together, the mountain and me, until only the mountain remains. You know, where the sense of I disappears. We sit together, the mountain and me, until only the mountain remains. So how about trying, we sit together, the breath and me, until only the breath remains. Or we walk together, the legs and me, until only the legs remain. Whatever, any moment of experience, to see that possibility, the, the taste of the selflessness, where things are just as they are, the simplicity of that. <coughs> we can also be reminded <coughs> of emptiness of self, sometimes by different teachers we might have had either by their presence or by their words. And I've had many experiences of that with different of my teachers, but one example is really vivid in my mind when Deepama was visiting. You know, and she was such an extraordinary teacher and person, and so empty. It's like she, she seemed to be simply a manifestation of love and emptiness. You know, and the union of the two. And there's this one image that stays in my mind of her coming into the hall up at the retreat center <clears throat> and just coming in and doing her bows to the Buddha. And it was so beautiful to watch because there was just the feeling that there was no one there. It was like love bowing to love and peace bowing to peace. And it was like a silent transmission of that possibility. And sometimes, just by being with teachers who really live in this emptiness, are abiding in that space, <coughs> reflect back to us, often uncomfortably so, our own places of holding, our own places of selfing. You know, in contrast, they become so obvious. And even though it feels uncomfortable or difficult, it actually is a very useful uh, process because we're able to see it then more clearly. And in the seeing, we can let go.
there's another way we can experience the emptiness of self, this lack of self-centeredness, when we see that there's no existent, independent thing that the word self or I refer to. And there's one discourse of the Buddha that points very directly to this experience. And it's, it's an interesting discourse because it said that it was the very shortest teaching the Buddha gave in which somebody became an arhant, fully enlightened. And there's a whole nice little background story to it. It seems someplace in southern India there was a shipwreck on shore and uh, this one guy on the ship kind of was washed on shore and he had, no, he had lost everything, all his possessions and his clothes, and so he just kind of covered himself with bark. His name was Bahia, and he's known as Bahia of the bark cloth. And he was just living in India under a tree, you know, <coughs> basically begging for food. But India being India, people saw this person just dressed in bark cloth, living under a tree, and they assumed he must be a holy man. You know, and they started, you know, reverencing him. And so he felt that, you know, maybe this is so. And he started to think of himself as being an aunt, fully enlightened, because everybody else was seeing him that way. The power of self-delusion. <laughs> Fortunately, in some past life, as the story goes, you know, one of his friends had been reborn as a deva. And so this deva came down to Bahia, you know, who's now Bahia of the Barkloff, and said, Bahia, <laughs> you're not an arhant. <laughs> but there is someone, you know, in northern India who can straighten you out. <laughs> so he, he obviously had a lot of power in me, you know, because he could recognize the truth of that, and he had this ability somehow to actually make his way to northern India. He met the Buddha. He met the Buddha on uh, just the street as the Buddha was going out for alms rounds. And he said, please teach me. And the Buddha said, wait, you know, we'll go back to the monastery. But he said a second time, no, something may happen. Please teach me now. Buddha said, wait, the proverbial third time. But he said, please teach me. Okay. So this old prologue to the teaching. Now he heard this, and I want you to hear it in the same way, because he heard it and became an arhant. So we're trying again. <laughs> it's every talk, it's good to put in one little possibility here. Okay, so this is what the Buddha said to Bahia. <clears throat> this, it's a, the first stanza, particularly, is quite well known. But it's in the second stanza that the Buddha really seals it. So the Buddha said to Bahia, in the scene, there is only the scene. In the herd, there is only the herd. In the sensed, smell, taste, touched, there is only the sensed. In the thought, there is only the thought. This Bahia is how you should train yourself. When by here there is for you in the scene only the scene, in the heard only the heard, in the sensed only the sensed, in the thought only the thought, then by here there is no you in connection with that. So we can understand that if there is only the scene in the heard and the sensed and the thought, then there is no you in connection with that. When by here there is no you in connection with that, there is no you there. When by here there is no you there, then by here you are neither here nor there nor in between the two. This, just this, is the end of suffering. By here became an arhant. And as the story goes, a few minutes later, a wild cow came up, gored him, and he died. So it was a very fortuitous teaching. It's so simple. Not easy, because of our conditioning. But it's so simple. In the scene, just the scene. In the herd, just the herd. 
in the sense, just the sense, in the thought, just the thought. There is just what there is in the moment. You know, the concept of self, the concept of I, is a designation for a pattern of changing elements. It's like how we might use the word storm, you know, to designate kind of a weather event of rain and wind and thunder and lightning. But there's no storm apart from those elements. It's not that the storm is an existent substantial thing apart from the elements that constitute it. And exactly in the same way, self is a designation for a pattern of mental and physical elements. But it doesn't refer to anything substantial apart from those elements. And yet, because we don't see this clearly, we invest in that designation, in that concept self or I, a substantial reality. And we believe it, and our lives become self-centered. And when we look at the elements that constitute what we call self, and we actually bring our attention down to the level of experiencing the different elements, we see that on the elemental level, things are changing so rapidly that they cannot be called self. They're arising and disappearing in the moment. They don't last long enough to be called self. <clears throat> One of the first Western disciples of Ubakin who was Goenkaji's teacher, was a woman named Jocelyn King, uh, very interesting woman. She went to Burma as an older woman, got very involved in the teaching, came back and had uh, some pretty deep realizations. And one of her very great lines was, she said, it's better to stand on the firm ground of emptiness than on the quicksand of somethingness. You know, but we don't quite get that. Because how often do we sink into the quicksand of sensations and thoughts and emotions, forgetting their empty, selfless nature? <coughs> now, there's another series of discourses that the Buddha gave which again, like the discourse to Bahia, just very incisively deconstructs the notion of self. And through these discourses we can see, we can come to understand that the self is not a thing that we need to get rid of. It's not a problem because it was never there in the first place. Rather, we have to see how it is that we are creating the felt sense of it, moment to moment. So, in one of these series of discourses, these are in the Samyutta Nikaya, there were some wandering ascetics, you know, and in India at that time there were a lot of, a lot of spiritual activity of all kinds, you know, so a lot of different schools and Wandering, wandering monks and ascetics. So one group of these uh, wandering monks came to a Buddhist monk whose name was Anuradha. And they were speaking in typical Indian fashion, Indian philosophic fashion, of what happens to the Buddha after his death. Okay, so this is just a classic in Indian formulation. They were saying he either exists or doesn't exist both does and does not exist, neither exist nor not exist. Okay, so you don't have to think too much about all that. But Anuradha said the Buddha after his death is spoken of in some other way. So then these ascetics laughed at Anuradha, they mocked him, they reviled him, 
they said, you must either be a novice or a fool. So he didn't quite know how to respond. So he went to the Buddha, you know, and he said, this is what happened. What would have been a proper response? So this is the Buddha talking to Anuradha. He asked a series of questions. Now think of, think of this as the Buddha asking you these questions, because we can listen to this as a kind of abstract Buddhist philosophy, which is not that helpful, or we can listen in the way that Anuradha must have listened, where we're really taking in the meaning of what the Buddha is saying in terms of our own experience. That's what's liberating. And there's a punchline to this, which again has tremendous power to transform our understanding. So the questions the Buddha asked Anuradha were very simple. They're not trick questions. The Buddha said, is the body permanent or impermanent? Impermanent. Are feelings, perceptions, mental formations, consciousness, that is the five aggregates, everything that constitutes our experience. So there's nothing left out. It's everything that constitutes our experience. Is it permanent or impermanent? Impermanent. <clears throat> so then the Buddha said, he asked, what is impermanent? Now think in your own experience. What is impermanent? Nature to change, is that reliable or unreliable? Is it satisf ultimately satisfying or unsatisfying? It's unreliable, unsatisfying. So then the Buddha asks, what is impermanent, unreliable, what is of the nature to change, which is everything, right? It's the five aggregates, every aspect of experience. Is what is impermanent, unreliable, of the nature to change? Is it proper to regard that as this is mine, this is myself, this is I? Now just think of that for a moment. You know, everything is in constant, momentary change, unsatisfying and unreliable because of that. So does it make sense to call that which <laughs> vanishes in the moment of its arising, this is I, this is mine? No, Bonte. Okay, so you clear on all this? This is very straightforward. So now the Buddha goes on, and here you, here you really have to pay a little attention. The Buddha asked Anuradha, do you regard the Tathagata, which is how he referred to himself, do you regard the Tathagata's body as being the Tathagata? So we might, we might translate that, do we regard our own body as being who we are, having just understood it's impermanent, unreliable, not self. So do you regard the Tathagata's body as the Tathagata? Surely not. Do you regard feelings, perceptions, formations, consciousness as being the Tathagata? Surely not. They're the impermanent, unreliable, selfless phenomena. Do you regard the Tathagata as being something apart from these five aggregates? Okay, we see that the aggregates are not self, not I. So is the Tathagata, is the self something apart from the five aggregates? No bande. Because what could it be if it's not the five aggregates? Okay, this is the last. Then he said, do you regard the Tathagata as having no body, no feeling, no perceptions, no acti activities, mental formations, no consciousness? Surely not. Okay, here's the, here's the punchline. 
remember what we just unpacked, then since in just this life the Tathagata is not to be found. He's not to be found in the aggregates, he's not to be found apart from the aggregates. Then since in just this life the Tathagata or the self is not to be found, is not met with in reality, is it proper to say of him he can be spoken of in some other way after death. Do you see, Anuradha had been formulating, yeah, the Buddha can be spoken of in some other way, but he was predicating the self of the Buddha, a self that could be spoken of in some other way, and the Buddha just deconstructed it all. He said, even in this life, the Buddha is not to be found. The Tathagata is not to be found. In this life, Joseph is not to be found. Each one of us is not to be found. It's just the aggregates, impermanent, unreliable, selfless, arising and passing away. That's what is actually going on. And our whole practice is to see this, to free us from the illusion, from the delusion of the self-center. Okay, other Buddhist traditions emphasize a different aspect of emptiness. That is the empty, space-like nature of the mind. The great Indian adept, Padmasambhava, who brought Buddhism from India to Tibet. He said, it's certain that the nature of mind is empty. So again, when you hear this, really reflect upon your own experience of the nature of your mind. This is not a philosophic description. He's describing our experience. Certain that the nature of mind is empty and without any foundation whatsoever. Your own mind is insubstantial like the empty sky. Look at your own mind to see whether this is so or not. So this is an interesting practice, to turn the attention back onto the mind itself. And I've spoken uh, in previous weeks about just reframing our experience in the passive voice, sounds being known, thoughts being known, feelings being known, sights being known, because that construction takes the subject out of it. But then there's the interesting question, known by what? There's a movement, and the movement is being known. Known by what? And then when we look for it, there's nothing to find. So that's what Padmasambhava is pointing to, the unfindability. But there are some subtleties here, because we might do this. We might look into the nature of mind and experience maybe a great sense of spaciousness, or light, or something. But that still is a conditioned state. And so what does it mean to say the nature of the mind is empty? Um, Sokni Rinpoche had a very, uh, very clarifying distinction. He said, it's not a question The nature of mind is not so much a question of spaciousness (coughs) as groundlessness. I thought that really hit the mark. So we don't want to get seduced into thinking empty means spacious, and spacious is just another state. But groundless kind of conveys more the sense of (coughs) real emptiness. No place to take a stand at all. So this practice (coughs) is not so much a deconstruction of the sense of self, as the Buddha did in some of those suttas, but it's a direct recognition of the mind's empty essence. But the nature of the mind is not just empty. 
you know, in all the different ways we've just spoken about. As Shabkar said, it's intrinsically empty, naturally radiant. So what does this mean? Radiant here means the knowing, cognizing faculty. It's the innate wakefulness and awareness of mind. So Buddhadasa, who was <clears throat> a very um, unusual Thai monk of the last century, very liberal in his uh, understanding, and he, he studied a lot of Mahayana as well as Theravada, so he had a very uh, broad view of things. He said, we should really call mind emptiness, but because of awareness faculty, we call it mind. You know, and so it's this union of understanding the empty nature of it, and at the same time, it's knowing, cognizing nature. Now, this nature is not something we get or develop. It's something we come back to as we let go of various defilements and attachments, you know, all the fixations of mind. So there's an image which describes this movement from the mind attached, the attached mind, to the mind of awareness. An image which describes the movement from delusion to wisdom, from self-center to zero-center, from a dream state to a wakeful state. And this image is found in many different Tibetan teachings. It's the image of ice and water. Ice is solid, it's hard, it's frozen. And it represents the experience of the mind when there is identification with any arising object. Sight, sound, thought, emotion, sensation, objects of experience are arising in moments when there's identification with them. That's the fixation, that's the attachment the mind has become ice. Identification with the body, with thoughts, emotions, even with knowing itself. Ice is when we're lost in the movies of our minds. You know, it's like being in a movie theater and getting so lost in the story that we forget we're watching a movie. You know, our our bodies, our emotions, our minds are so fully engaged in the story, at least on some level, that we believe what's happening on the screen is real. And right here, we can see the great seductive power of samsara in our lives. Because the pleasure of being lost in the story is exactly why we go to the movies. You know, why do we go? Why do we find it enjoyable? Because we're entranced by the pleasure of being lost. When we awaken from the dream, though, or you know, in the theater, we look up at the beam of light. <clears throat> in the darkness of the theater, we're reminded that nothing is really going on at all. There's no man, there's no woman, there are no love scenes, there are no car chases. None of that is really happening. And yet, before we looked up and saw the beam of light, you know, adrenaline rush was going on in our bodies. The difference in our level of understanding. When we look up, we see it's just pixels of light on the screen. And then, if you'd really like to open to another level, what happens to our experience of light if there are no dust particles in the air or no screen on which it can land? If there's no object which is illuminated by it, do we actually see the light? So here we can get some sense of the light itself, then, is unborn. It's unmanifest. 
So this can give us a clue as to what, when the Buddha talks of the unborn, unmanifest, what that reality might be. One of my favorite stories is told of uh, the 16th Karmapa, the time of his death. He died in Chicago. So now the 17th is, I don't know, he's in his guess, early 20s. Or this was that many years ago. And he was dying of cancer, and his body was a mess. You know, it was riddled with cancer. And he had his disciples and students, devotees around him, and they were obviously all upset and grieving. And he was a very, an extraordinarily great master. And as it's told, at, at one point, the Karmapa turned to his students and devotees, and this is, you know, as he's dying, and he said, don't worry, nothing happens. It's like, it's so inspiring just to imagine being on that level of understanding. It's like realizing that everything that's happening on the screen that we're so caught up in and identified with and involved with and engaged with, in the movie theater, nothing's really going on. It's just, we've created it. And so, just to imagine the Karmapa's mind, you know, resting in that unborn, where the story of what was happening, he just saw, saw through the illusory nature of it. So in our practice and in our lives, <clears throat> we can watch this contraction into ice, many times a day, you know, as we get caught up or identified in moments of desire or anger or worry or unworthiness, you know, or pride or impatience or longing, whatever it is, whatever our particular patterns are, what's really happening is simply empty phenomena rolling on. That's all. It's just different mind-body elements arising and passing. But we get caught, we get hooked in one way or another, depending on our conditioning, and we get identified with different arising appearances. And if we're somewhat attentive, even a little after the fact, we can feel the contraction. You know, we can feel the solidification of self in those moments. Things were just rolling along, and then all of a sudden, you know, and there's that grasping at something. So water, as opposed to ice, represents the nature of awareness, which is consciousness free of delusion, naturally radiant. It's just awareness pure and simple. Like water, this awareness is unfrozen, unfixated. We can recognize it in that moment when we step out of the movie theater, having been totally engaged in the story. You know that moment? of stepping out of the theater, and psh, it's like this little reality shift and the expansion. Oh yeah, all of that was just a movie. And we experience it right here on retreat very often. If we pay attention to the feeling, every time we come out from being lost in a mind drama, however intense, realizing that it was just a thought or just a passing emotion. <coughs> of course, we've all had very many experiences of this. I'll just relay one which was very striking to me, but it's one of countless numbers. Uh, for many years in my practice, the predominant difficult emotion that I was working with was fear and just fear coming up in so many different forms, sometimes just passing thoughts of fear, sometimes really paralyzing fear. And often it was primal. There was no particular content to it. And I was working, and this, this went on over a multi-year period where this was the predominant difficult emotion. And I started to create this whole self-story about the fear. I'm, I'm this person, because of my conditioning, I have all this fear. 
and it's so deeply rooted, and it's going to take 30 years of therapy to unwind this, and just going on and on and on. And having worked with it for quite a while, at one time I was just teaching in Texas with Sharon, uh, and after lunch we were going for a walk, and I was going on and on about my fear, and no, no, it was just so deep. And <laughs> so she just turned to me, and it was one of those moments, and she said, Joseph, it's only a mind state. And you know, it's something that I had said a million times and had heard a million times, but you know, when sometimes the moment is right, when you actually really get it. That was that moment. It's only a mind state. I didn't have to create this whole superstructure of self on top of it. And that allowed for just a great opening. Sometimes it came, sometimes it went. It didn't matter. Just it helped me to see the empty nature of it. So that was the mind going from ice to water, from identification to, to openness. Now, there's a great discovery here. And the discovery is that water is nothing other than melted ice. So it's not that awareness is some far-off other meditative state that if we practice for 25 years, maybe we'll be in the water. It's not that. Rather, the water, awareness, is this very mind unfrozen, this very mind which has let go of clinging, let go of identification, free of attachment, even for a moment. Another Tibetan teacher, Zigar Kongchul, he said, the experience of emptiness is not found outside the world of ordinary appearance, as many people mistakenly assume. And we do, we hear these words, emptiness, and you know, nature of mind, and awareness, and think it's some kind of esoteric state. It's not found outside the world of ordinary appearance. In truth, we experience emptiness when the mind is free of grasping at appearance. So it's that simple. You know, moment after moment, different appearances are arising. Emptiness is the experience of not grasping at that. It's when ice melts into water. Of course, as I've mentioned many times, sometimes what we think is water, you know, where we're really just resting in an open, flowing, empty awareness. We think it's water, but it's really slush. <clears throat> and that's the state where it feels open, you know, and empty, but there may be subtle attachments, subtle identifications that we're, we're not really seeing. You've probably had this experience at different times in practice. You know, when we're sitting and things are going along really well, we're feeling pretty open and not clinging. And then all of a sudden, you know, and often spontaneously, there'll just be a, a sudden further relaxation, a further letting go, which reveals, oh yeah, there had been a subtle fixation on something you know, that we didn't even know was there. But then in that moment of relaxation, ah, there. so we settle into a greater place of freedom. The mind's nature is vivid, like a flawless piece of crystal, intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, and ceaselessly responsive. So that's the last of its attributes. In this open, empty, unobstructed nature of awareness, empty of self, there is a great, effortless, spontaneity and responsiveness to situations. You know, it's like water flowing down a mountainside and it just responds effortlessly and perfectly to the topography. So the ninth century uh, Rinzai Zen master, uh, Zen master, his name was Rinzai, expressed the creativity and the potential of a person not imprisoned in ice, 
not imprisoned in the concept of self. And he called this kind of person a person of no reliance. That's, at least in English, the, the phrase that he used. So this is Rinzai. If someone comes to me asking for the Buddha, as a person of no reliance, I present myself in a state of purity. If she or he asks for a bodhisattva, I present myself in a state of mercy and benevolence. If they ask for nirvana, complete enlightenment, I present myself in a state of honor serenity. Though there are hundreds of thousands of states, as a person of no reliance, empty of self, my presentation of various states according to the requirements is just like the moon that freely presents its images on every surface of water. And I just, I really love the idea of compassion as being the natural responsiveness of mind. When it's empty of self, intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, this natural innate wakefulness, and in that state, it's naturally responsive to people, to situations. (coughs) We begin to see that compassion is the activity of emptiness. And there's no particular prescription for what we should do. There's no hierarchy of compassionate action because the field of compassion is limitless. It's the field of suffering beings. And so when we are a person of no reliance, that is a person free of the self-center, then the mind our life is ceaselessly responsive. We each find our own way, just through our own particular interests and talents and skills. (coughs) There's one story which is quite remarkable in terms of the spontaneous nature of compassionate response. And maybe you remember, this happened a few years ago in New York City. Uh, somebody in the subway had fallen on to the subway tracks and couldn't get off. And maybe they'd hurt themselves. And a train was coming. And there was this guy standing on the platform. His name was Wesley Autry. And just in a moment, he saw what was happening. He jumped onto the tracks lay down on top of this person in a flat so the train passed over them, you know, and neither was hurt. So this is what he had to say. <clears throat> After, I mean, <clears throat> this became, you know, it was in all the newspapers and he got all kinds of medals and stuff. <clears throat> but this is what he said. I don't feel like I did something spectacular. I just saw someone who needed help. I did what I felt was right. I do construction work in confined spaces. So I looked, and my judgment was pretty right. The train did have enough room for me. (laughs) Now just think, if he had been on the platform, oh, I really should be compassionate. What should I do? Hopeless. But just out of whether he knew it or not, out of that emptiness of self, just that that innate, spontaneous responsiveness. He had the skill to see what was needed and to do what was needed, and and it's, it's just so remarkable. In our practice, the more we understand the empty nature of phenomena, the selfless nature, the more we abide in that selfless nature, the more the spontaneous responsiveness uh, happens. Dilgo, Dilgo Kenshi Rinpoche, another of the really great masters, he said, when you recognize the empty nature of phenomena, the energy to, do, the energy to bring about the good of others dawns uncontrived and effortless. You know, and this is such a 
testament to the practice that there are particular practices of compassion we can do, you know, to cultivate that quality, but it's also coming to appreciate that it is a manifestation of wisdom. That love and compassion is not necessarily something we have to do. It's what we become as our understanding of selflessness, of emptiness deepens. Now this is the space of mind that just is open to all, that includes all, that transforms obstacles into insight, that transforms difficulties just into the light of wisdom. Because we're seeing things with wise understanding. So I'd just like to close with something from a novel by Saul Bellow from Humboldt's Gift. And it's really wonderful, you know, to, to can really appreciate the universality of the Dharma because just in so many different arenas, whether it's in literature or art or many other in different aspects of work, kind of the, the Dharma understanding on some pretty deep levels, you see people spontaneously understanding it or opening to it. <coughs> So this is, this is what Sol Bella wrote. Once in a while, I get shocked into upper wakefulness, which is an interesting phrase, upper wakefulness. I turn a corner, see the ocean, and my heart tips over with happiness. It feels so free. Then I have the idea that as well as beholding, I can be beheld from yonder, and am not a discrete object, but incorporated with the rest, with universal sapphire, purplish blue. For what is this sea, this atmosphere, doing within the eight-inch diameter of your skull? I say nothing of the sun and the galaxy, which are also there. At the center of the beholder, there must be space for the whole. And this nothing space is not an empty nothing, but a nothing reserved for everything. So that's really our practice. Coming to this nothing space that is not an empty nothing, but a nothing reserved for everything. Let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.